0: our Bibles and open to 1st John chapter 4, and we are working our way through this epistle of 1st John, working our way towards the end of this, and this is this letter that John wrote to believers at the end of the first century. We don't know who they are or where they lived. We just know that they had a lot of issues like we have in churches today. Some of the same things that we face today were faced by John, and that's why he wrote this letter Now, the first century, the Christians didn't have copies of the Bible. And we've talked about that many times. You couldn't carry around a copy of the Bible. So what they did was they would commit Scripture to memory. And so when they were taught things by the apostles, they relied much on their memory about what they were told. And when they ever had to recall certain things, then they would just have to go back and say, well, what was I taught about that? And we really ought to be thankful and really probably don't consider how blessed we are to be able to have a Bible that we can pick up any time that we want and refer to it in times of trouble, to seek comfort there, to find the doctrines of Christ there, just things that we need to know, things about salvation and all other areas of life. We are just incredibly blessed to have the Word of God. And you don't wonder at all why there are people in other countries that just they they're exuberant, joyful when they can get their hands on a copy of Scripture, and it's really it's really we are blessed that we're able to have that. Well, First John is a it's just a remarkable letter in many ways, and one of the most significant ways that it's remarkable is in evidence and in what we've studied here that John says a whole lot in a very little space and unraveling. The truths that John has for us here take some diligence. And sometimes we wonder about first century Christianity is that they understood what John wrote without the aid of commentaries and dictionaries and all other kinds of things that we have today to explain what John had to say. And that tells me something. I think it tells me that, and I'm not getting a word of revelation, I'm not getting word of it, it It tells me something, though, as I think about this, that um, they must have been much more prone to rely on the Holy Spirit as they... Learn the Word of God as far as understanding what it meant than most people are today. Because we, you know, there aren't a lot of, lot of just nuggets laying on the surface here for us to pick up as we go through First John, and that's why we're, what are we, 50-some, you know, 57 messages into this, and we're still talking about four chapters. So it's not like everything is just right there on the surface. You grab it and go on. Uh, you kind of have to go through this, and most Christians are not willing to to really get down deep in that kind of a study. They just don't care enough about the Word of God to do that. And so I'm sure that these first century Christians, when they got this letter from John that they just read it thoroughly. I mean, they went over and over and over again. They went through it carefully, and they discussed it, I think, until they just understood what John was talking about. So John has a lot to say in a short amount of space, uh, short sentences, profound truths that are here. And in the midst of those profound truths, he tells us the key to understanding them. And I've already given you the key. The key is the Holy Spirit. That's why they were able to understand these things. That the Holy Spirit guides us into truth. So the purpose of the letter is to help these Christians to gain assurance of their salvation. He wants them to have confidence in their confession. And so he keeps pointing them in the right direction all of the time as they're seeking that assurance from, uh, about that salvation. So we're going to read uh, the last verses of chapter 4 again. Then we'll continue with our subject, confidence in our confession. Verse number 13 says, Hereby know we that we dwell in him, and he in us, because he hath given us of his Spirit. And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him, and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. Herein is our love made perfect that we may have boldness in the day of judgment because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen... How can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. Now, I hope that you have been listening well over these past few weeks, and I don't think that I'm going to reveal any new information to you tonight, but you're very much aware that the difference between you and a person who has no relationship with Jesus Christ, and, of course, I'm talking to you that are saved, and I hope that everybody is, that the difference between you and them is the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life, that you have been regenerated by the Spirit of God, that your spiritual understanding has been enlightened so that you know who God, who Jesus is. You know about the work of the Holy Spirit. You are aware that this work has taken place in your heart. Now, for people that are dead in trespasses and sin, of course, there's no way that they can understand what God has given us in Christ until the Holy Spirit comes and he awakens us uh, to, to that spiritual death that we're in and brings us into spiritual life. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he says, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. Now, if I were to ask you, what is the one thing that is most important that has been freely given to us by God, and we understand by the Spirit of God, what would you say? Well, I hope you would say, what we have first on our listening sheet tonight, what we talked about last week, and that is belief in Jesus. That is the gift that God has given. He's given Jesus... And then he's enabled us to believe in him. Now, the first thing that is on John's mind as he begins the letter of 1 John is Jesus, the revelation of Jesus. And here in our text, in verse number 15, he says, "...whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him, and he in God." So John began the epistle by asking, or sort of raising to our attention, who is Jesus? And then he began his gospel account. In the very same way, he headed straight for the deity and the humanity of Christ. That Jesus was God incarnate. That Christ came to this earth and he had work to do. And that work was to do the will of his Father. Here's what Jesus said in John 9 verse 4. He said, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. So there was a lot of work for Jesus to do, and that's what we began our discussion last week with, and that's the work of the Savior. And it is the work of the Savior to be the Savior. He he accomplished our salvation for us, and the way that he did that is multifaceted. You know, I love the way that the themes of our services often have this point of convergence where... Uh, things start all coming together, and we're talking about same types of topics. But in the in the Revelation series, we've been speaking about hell, and Jesus came to do a saving work in delivering us from judgment and the everlasting punishment of hell. And we talked about Jesus' obedience to, to God's laws and how that he imputes righteousness that he earned to us by faith in him. And then he saved us, as I said, from the punishment that we deserve. He saved us by becoming our intercessor. He is our advocate that appears before God the Father and pleads forgiveness on a continual basis because of his blood. And then he saves us by purifying us. He sanctifies us in order that we're holy as God is holy. And the scriptures also teach that he will save us. And he will save us by glorifying us. And so that work Jesus still has to do to glorify this body that we're in. And so all of this work that Jesus did is summed up in Paul's great statement in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 30. He said, But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And then Paul followed that verse with, That according as it is written, He that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. So every part of our salvation from start to finish is because of the work of the Savior. And he leaves no room for us to take any credit or to state it in another way, as Paul said in Ephesians 2, that it's not of works lest we should boast. And so it is the work of the Savior to save. And that's just pretty basic. But it's missed by a lot of people because they they want to help Jesus to save them. But Jesus doesn't need any help saving you. God has taken care of all of that and Christ has done it all on the cross. He doesn't need anybody's help to to save people. So that's why it says, not of works, lest any man should boast, because he doesn't want us to have any credit in salvation. Now, John goes further here to show us that the Holy Spirit enables our belief in the gospel by causing these people to accept or to believe the witness of the apostles. So how is it that anyone believes all of these incredible statements about God becoming man? I mean, why do we accept those statements? I mean, how does anybody believe that a man dying on a Roman cross and dying as a criminal and dying in shame could actually be God? Well, we have the witness of the apostles that tell us that it's true, but that doesn't mean that we're going to receive that testimony doesn't mean that we're going to believe what they say. So why is it that we do believe what the apostles say? Well, it can only be attributed to the Holy Spirit. I mean, the the story of Christ and his death on the cross is so incredible that people would not believe it unless it's revealed to us by the Holy Spirit. Now, going back to verse number 6 in this fourth chapter, John says, We are of God. He that knoweth God heareth us. He that is not of God heareth not us. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. And he's speaking there, we are of God. He's talking about the apostles. We've been over that. And we hear and we believe the gospel of Christ because God caused this. And that's the consistent teaching that we have in Scripture. John 8:47 says, he that is just Jesus speaking, he that is of God, heareth God's words. But he said to these other people that he's speaking to, ye therefore hear them not because ye are not of God. So faith is not something that's man-produced. It's not man-initiated. It comes from God. Scripture says that God grants repentance and faith. Acts eleven eighteen tells us that. So we're not different from other people that are around us because of anything that's in us. We are different from them because of God. He's the one that gives us our faith. But we do need to understand that the faith that we have is our faith. We do believe. But it's always God that initiates that so that we can believe. So the Holy Spirit has illuminated us to that, illuminated us rather, to that truth so we recognize what we read in Scripture as truth. And we believe all these truths every, every, all these works that I've talked to you about of Christ. We believe all of that because the Holy Spirit has opened our understanding of it. Now, there are many people that believe in Christ and from reading verses uh, 14, or they say that they believe in Christ. And, and from reading verses 14 and 15, we might think that a simple confession or an admission that Jesus is God is the extent of what John means in those verses. But he really means much more than that. He, he contained in that confession that Jesus is the Son of God and that he is the Savior of the world is our submission to him. And that submission is yielding ourselves in all ways to him. And when we're yielded to Christ, the evidence of that always shows. This is what Paul wrote in Romans six nineteen. He says, "'I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members servants of righteousness unto holiness.'" So there is a difference in pre-salvation, pre-salvation man, pre-salvation believers, and those post-salvation believers. Now, pre-salvation, of course, they're not believers at that point. But I mean somebody that's going to believe in Jesus Christ. There is a difference in them before they're saved than after they're saved. And Paul says, before you were the servants of sin. That's the way your life was before. But he says, now you are the servants of righteousness. And so yield yourself to that holiness, to that righteousness. And if you have not become servants of righteousness, then what would that tell you? If you refuse to be that, then what does that tell you? Well, it tells you you wouldn't be saved. And, and guess how that righteousness manifests itself? Well, we can find it here in 1 John. He says, we know that we're children of God because we believe rightly about Christ because we keep his commandments and because we have love for our brothers. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I said that the evidence uh, of our salvation is in the fruits of the Holy Spirit. It's not in strange feelings and it's not an emotional outburst. It's the fruit that we read about in Galatians 5:22 and 23 and other like passages that speak of salvation uh, Things that are produced in our lives by the Holy Spirit. Those fruits are the good works of righteousness. Now, the apostles then witnessed Christ, and, and the evidence that uh, they, they had, the evidence of what they preached is because of the Holy Spirit that's in their lives, and we believe what they say because the same Holy Spirit is in us and has revealed the same truth. Now, I want to take it a step further here and go back to the main theme of this section. Uh, John zeroes in on the main determiner of Christianity, which is love. In previous messages, I've spoken about the example of Christ and how we are to love others, and we are to love as God loved us. And if we're going to love as God loved us, then we first have to determine that we know that God actually loves us. I mean, you would have to know where you stand with him before you could ever love somebody else as God loves you. So another way of saying that is how do you know that this is a is a heart belief and not just a head belief? You see, it's one thing to believe 1 John 4, 9 through 10 and go on from there to John three sixteen and acknowledge those scriptures. I mean, any confessing Christian of any stripe acknowledges the truth of those scriptures. But is salvation only a matter of acknowledging facts? And there are some people who think that's what it amounts to. You just give consent to the facts, if those things are true. But I think it's more than acknowledgement of facts. It is that the truth about Jesus has permeated every fiber of your being, that it's sunk down deep into your soul. And so another way of saying that, is it a head belief or is it a heart belief? So it's not a matter of just acknowledging the facts. And so what I want to do tonight is to look at this essential truth that, that we have here. How do we really know the love of God? I mean, how do you know that the love of God is in you? So I, I'm going to give you 10 tests here tonight that show you if the love of God is in you. I mean, if it's really sunk down into your heart and it's not just still stuck up in your head. So thirdly, we're going to talk about the ways that I sense his presence or the ways that I know that the Holy Spirit is really in me, that Christ is really in me. Verse 16 says, and we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God and God in him. So how does that statement really ring true to you? Well, we've been dealing with tests and over 50 sermons now in First John, so I, I hope you don't mind taking another test. And this is a 10-part test. And if this one gives you confidence in your confession, then I'm sure that you won't mind. Now, this is not in question form, so I'm not giving you a test of questions, but I'm going to make some statements, and all you need to do is compare yourself to these statements. So here are proofs that we understand God's love, that it really is in us. Number one, is that we know that God is no longer against us. Now, I want to go quickly through these so I don't keep you all night, but there is a sense that we know that God is no longer against us. Now, one of the common questions that people ask when they don't know God is, why does a loving God allow this? I mean, if there's a hurricane or a tornado, a a tsunami, a terrorist attack... And, you know, we're coming up on the anniversary of 9-11 now, and, and people ask questions, why does God allow this? Well, it's not my purpose to answer that question tonight. I just want to state the fact that people believe that when bad things happen, it means that God must be against them. And you'll hear preachers explain away certain things like hurricanes and and that kind of thing that god is against the people god is against people and so he sent the hurricane to new orleans for example because he's fed up with bourbon street and mardi gras so what does a real christian though who's in the middle of that who's in the middle of new orleans new orleans and gets hit by that storm how does he feel about that Now, I received a a magazine the other day that showed a picture of a Baptist church in Joplin, Missouri that was completely destroyed by the tornadoes that came through there. Now, here's one thing I know for sure. The morality in Joplin, Missouri is much different than it is in Bourbon Street in New Orleans. I mean, we're talking about two different places. So what happens to a Christian that's sitting there in the middle of Joplin, Missouri, and a tornado comes and completely destroys their church? What do they think about that? Well, many people think, well, God is against us. But a person who is a real Christian knows that God is not against us. That he, he, he may ask the question, why does God allow that? But he doesn't act as if that's a personal thing against him. He knows that God's purpose is good. Whatever happens, God is going to work out for his good. So he never doubts God's purpose. He knows that it will be right. And if it glorifies God whatever glorifies God is always the best for him. And so when bad things happen, people sometimes blame God. They don't glorify him. They're hostile. They shake their fist in his face. But if you can look up to God and thank him in all things, as Paul said, then you know that the love of God dwells in you. Secondly, we know that God is for us. Now, that's the opposite of the first. He's not against us. He is actively for us. You see, what's happened here is we've not reached neutral ground with God. I mean, we could say that God is not against us, and that just puts us on an even plane. He's neither for nor against us. He's not against us. And there's some people who think about God in that way, that God is just ambivalent towards man, that God really doesn't have an interest in it. God's just a being out there somewhere in the universe. and He doesn't really care what's going on around here. He's not against us. He's not for us. He's just indifferent. Well, a real Christian knows that God is actively for me. He's not against me. He is for me. He cares about me. He knows what's going on in my life. And, and he has his divine providence and his loving kindness It's seen every day. His graciousness and His mercy, His loving kindness is always there. God is always watching me. And as I said a moment ago, Scripture tells us that God is working things out for our good. So we know that God is for us. Thirdly, we don't fear God. And I'll be brief here uh, because I'm going to deal with this in verse number 18 uh, next week. But we respect God. And we have a reverential fear of God, but we don't fear God like the heathen does. We don't think, well, what I have to do is offer God something of value. And if I don't do it, then God is angry with me, and worse things are going to happen to me than have already happened. Now, for example, our God is not like the God of Islam. There is no such thing as having a personal relationship with Allah. Now, of course, he doesn't exist. They only exist in their mind. But there's no such thing as having a personal relationship with him. There's no such thing as love and grace like we have uh, the love of Jehovah God. That doesn't exist in that religion. And you'll notice what those people do is that they will physically sacrifice themselves in order to satisfy Allah, whereas with Jehovah God, he physically sacrificed himself for us. We don't have to sacrifice ourselves for him. He sacrificed his self for us. And that's a big difference between heathen religions and the religion of Jehovah God. It's the only one that has an atonement, that he sacrificed himself for us. And so people will cringe in front of their God while we are lost in wonder and amazement at ours. Fourthly, we know that our sins are forgiven. Now, how many times have you heard... Someone testified just after they received Christ. It it was like a great burden was lifted off of their shoulders, taken off their back. Sin and guilt are terrible burdens for people to bear. Jesus said, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's just like the main character in Pilgrim's Progress who was named Christian. And he was carrying around a burden on his back. It was weighing him down. And that's the way sin is. Sin is a crushing load. But when you trust in Christ, there's a sense that that burden has been lifted. It's gone. And and then you're sure that you have the love of God. 2 weeks ago I was talking about chastisement and the proof that the Holy Spirit is is in us. And I said that when a believer sins, then you feel that you feel that weight. You feel that oppression. It's like the weight has come back. Now of course when you sin, and the weight that comes on you then is not, it doesn't stand in the same relationship to you as it did before, but you, but you feel that oppressive weight and misery because of sin. And so if you've ever knelt before God as a Christian, and you said like David, wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I acknowledge my transgressions. And if you've ever said, hide your face from my sins and blot out mine iniquities. If you've ever said, created me a clean heart, O God, and a right spirit within me. And if you've ever said, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit. If you've ever said things like that, then you have felt the burden lifted from you. And you can have confidence then that you understand the love of God. I can't explain to you how that happens. I mean, I I don't know how God does this, how you feel that oppressive weight and you just confess that sin and all of a sudden the joy and the gladness and refreshing returns. I felt it. I can't explain it. I know that God does it. And so if you felt that, then you can know that you have the love of God in you. Number five is that we are grateful to God. Have you ever been overwhelmed with a sense of gratitude towards God? You know, a few Wednesdays ago, after preaching on the love of God and sending Christ to die for sin, someone told me, you know, I could never never get over that story of the cross. It's amazing what Christ has done. Can you sense that in John Newton's heart when you read or sing Amazing Grace? I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Can you sense that in the Philippian jailer when he said to Paul and Silas, bend over. So I can wash those stripes that are on your back. I mean, in gratitude, he said, I thank God. I want to help the ones that helped me. And can you sense that in the maniac who came out of the tombs and Jesus cast the demons out of him? And the Bible says that he was sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. Can you imagine what he felt and what must have been going on in his mind when he was in his right mind? I think he must have been thinking, while he's sitting at the feet of Jesus, take your sandals off, let me wash your feet, let me do something, let me show my gratitude. Can you sense that when Mary brought that costly alabaster jar of ointment and she broke it and poured it out on Jesus' feet and then began to wipe his feet with her hair? If you've ever been thankful like that and grateful to God like that, then you can have confidence that the love of God is really in your heart. Number six... Is that we hate sin. Now the apostle Paul says in Romans 7, verse 24, "O wretched man that I am! Who shall deliver me from this body of the, the the body of this death?" Now do you know what happens when you get closer to God? Every imperfection, every flaw, every wrong thought, is just like an inflamed sore. You know there are people who interpret this part of Romans 7 is Paul speaking of his life before he became a Christian. And they reason that Paul could never have said had such a struggle with sin when uh, when he was a Christian. It had to be before he was saved that he's talking about. And then there are others who say that the, the apostle Paul is speaking here as a carnal Christian, as if that could actually exist. But Paul here then had not reached the proper level of sanctification, that he was having difficulty overcoming sin, but then at some point in his life he got the extra oomph from the Holy Spirit that kind of just pushed him over the hump, got him a little bit higher, and he got close to God. Well, this part of Romans 7 is not about that at all. We're talking about the Apostle Paul when he has already reached a high level of sanctification. He was so acutely aware of his sin that he was laboring to bring every thought and every motive, every deed into the submission of Christ. He didn't want sin of any kind to be in his life. And so whenever he sinned, he was so aware of it that it was just a painful setback, he thought, to his progress and his Christian life. He was so aware of his sin. So this is Paul groaning because he's striving to be more like Christ. And you know why? Because God hates sin. And if God hates sin, and I'm going to be like God or like Christ, then I also have to hate sin. And if you feel that way, if you abhor sin in your life, then you understand the love of God. You know what God did to overcome that sin. You know the price that Christ paid to overcome that sin. God gave his own son to conquer sin. And trust me, folks, he will do it. He will do it. So if you come to the place that sin hurts and you just can't stand it, then you have proof of God's love in your heart. Number seven, we desire to please God. Now again, you don't just stay on, on neutral ground with God. We could get rid of the negative here. But unless we've gone on to the positive, then we've not reached the level of understanding that we need. So what is it that God's love produces in us? Well, verse number 19 tells us, we love him because he first loved us. Because God loves us, we love him. And then what does Jesus say about those that love him? Well, we find it in John fourteen twenty one. He says, he that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my father. And I will love him and will manifest myself to him. Now, we could stay right here with the logical progression that's, that's going on here. God loves us, therefore, we love him. And if we love him, then we'll keep his commandments. And his commandment is that we love one another. And when we love one another, we please God. As Judge Judy says, they don't keep me here because I'm young and beautiful. And I've just given you a logical argument here to get you from point A to point B. So, I know... In fact, you do keep me here partly because I'm beautiful. So this, this is just a logical thing that comes out of this. So if you want to please God, if your desire is always to please God and to glorify Him, then you understand the love of God. You have achieved God's purpose in your life. You see, if I can ever get over me, if I can get past me, and I can get past satisfying myself and pleasing me, and my desire is always to please God, then I have proof of God's love dwelling in me. Number eight is we want to know God better. Now, this is where the rubber really meets the road. And I have to ask the question, why are there so few people at church on Wednesday night? Now, we can eliminate, of course, the legitimate excuses because we know that sometimes people's work schedules and the way things are work out that way, that they're just not able to be here. But I also know that there are a lot of members of Berean Baptist Church that are just sitting at home. They just don't want to come. They don't have an urge for, for another Bible study. And so they drag out on Sunday morning to the obligatory service that you need to come to. And that's about as much as they can do. And if I preach 45 minutes, which I'm getting more prone to do, as Steve can attest, and Bob... Uh, if I do that, then boy, I'll look out there and I see people that are just totally worn out. I mean, they're squirming in their seats and they're tipping up water bottles and dozing and everything else. There isn't much interest in knowing more about God. Now, I have to ask you also what are we doing in this service? Why, why do we even come here? It's because there's only one place that I can learn more about God. Where do I gain knowledge of God? Through His Word. This is why we spend time just right here in God's Word. This, this is how you find out about God. It's how you know God. It's only through the Word. You know, occasionally I'll read a biography of a great Christian, and I don't get to do that very often because I've got so much other types of reading material to do. But sometimes I read about some great saint of God, and I've never found one that I read about that didn't make the Word of God the centerpiece of his life. Now, I know that some people say, well, no, that's, that's not it. Prayer is the centerpiece of a person's life. I mean, all great men of God have been great men of prayer. And I don't dispute that. But what I don't see is any great prayer warriors who didn't start out by being in touch with God and in the power of God and has the power of God unless they first sunk down deep into God's Word. You can't separate those things out. You can't have power with God and not know God in His Word. And that's why I don't trust the charismaniacs. I mean, they're, they, they are just not... The Word of God is not prominent in their ministries. Their subjective experience is what's prominent. And so you listen to what they have to say about Scripture and you find out they don't know very much. And it's obviously, or obvious rather, that they haven't studied. And if they have studied, then they must not be saved because the Holy Spirit is not going to guide them into that utter nonsense well you already know what i'd feel about that and we we could spend a lot of time grading on that but sometimes there's such ignorance over these th- these things you just want to shake your head and go on but people believe that stuff and some point you have to just tackle that horrible foolishness and their explanations of scripture because you know this that satan is able to make manure look like chocolate cake and that's what they like that's what satan does number 9 we know that we don't love god enough. You know, I could say it another way. Actually, Jesus says it another way. Luke 17:10. He says, so likewise ye, when ye have done all those things which are commanded you, say we are unprofitable servants. We have done that which is our duty to do. I am just never going to get to the place that I love God enough. As long as I'm in this body, and as long as I am not entirely sanctified, in an entirely sanctified condition, That I'm never going to love God enough. Now, if you are unhappy that you don't love God enough, then you've actually reached the highest happiness that you can have. That sounds like a paradox, doesn't it? I mean, how's that possible? I mean, the greatest satisfaction that you'll ever have is the realization of your dissatisfaction because you don't love God enough. Your, your love for God's inadequate. Now, does a lost person ever think about that? Does a lost person ever consider these things? Does he think about that with a cold, stone, dead heart? He never thinks about this, but you do. And if you've ever said, my heart is just too cold towards God, then you've just given proof that the love of God is in you. Remember what Jesus says, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. There's one author who said, comfort yourself... You would not seek me if you'd not already found me. So the fact that you are unhappy, that you don't love God enough, that's proof that the love of God is already dwelling in you. Well, here's the tenth one, and then we'll be through for this evening. We're moving along pretty good. Number ten, we love to hear about Christ. I was uh, speaking of the cross a moment ago. When does the story of the cross get old? I mean, when do you get tired of hearing about that? When do you get tired of singing songs about the cross? And how many times have you sung songs about the cross? I, you know, I think about that that song, "The Power of the Cross." If we sang it every Sunday, I don't think I'd ever get tired of it. I mean, I love the message of the song. But then somebody says, "Oh, it all gets boring after a while." Well, the one who says that doesn't know the love of God. How can you ever get tired of hearing about Jesus? How can you get tired of hearing about what he did for you? You know, I've been going to church for over 50 years. I've heard some boring preachers, and and I may be the worst of them, I don't know. But I don't get bored and tired of the subject. I don't get tired of when I hear about Jesus. And I can promise you, I know, I've been to more services, more church services than anybody sitting here tonight. Maybe twice or three times as many of some of you or even more than that. But as I stand here preaching to you tonight, I look forward to the next one, just coming back and talking about Jesus again and and the Word of God. I'm looking forward to, with, with tremendous anticipation, to the next conference that I get to go to where I'll get to hear about 35 hours of preaching in two and a half days, and not storytelling time. I'm talking about exposition of Scripture. I mean, getting down into the Word of God and just dealing with the text and going through it and seeing what God means by this Word that He's given, it, given us. And I'm not trying to set myself up and say, oh boy, I'm such a great guy. I'm a great model for everybody else. Because what I'm actually doing is looking out here over a group of people that I know that there are many of you that are constantly in the Word. That you'll leave this service tonight and you'll pick up some reading material. You'll try to find something else that, that explains more about God. You'll, between services, you're looking at other stuff. You're reading maybe commentaries, I don't know, but other types of books that are, that are written by good people on the subjects that are found in the Word of God. Or reading your Bibles, I know that you're doing that. And that is proof of real Christianity. If you can't hear enough about Christ, then you know that the love of God is in you. So those are ten tests, and I hope that you did well on those. And looking over this crowd tonight, I suspect that many of you would do very, very well on a test like this. How do we know that God's love is in us? Well, review those ten things and think about them some more after you leave here. I hope you took some notes and just think about, are these things true in my life? If they are, then I know that the love of God is in me. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Tonight, for everyone who's come to hear your word, and and uh, Lord, we think about just such a wonderful salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. All of the works that you did to make it possible, all the many different things that you still continue to do to keep us safe and secure in our salvation. And then, Lord, we look forward to the time that you come again and receive us to yourself. And then we can be where you are. We pray, Lord, you bless each one that's here, and I thank you for people again that are interested in your word, and oh, it's just great to be in the, in the body of Christians that are really, really concerned and, and care about the kind of work that we do here and, and what we learn about you. Bless, bless us all, Lord. We just ask for your richest blessings to be upon everyone here. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.